Today we're in Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 66. If you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to go ahead and turn there. And in fact, I did, we don't do this every week, but I want to make sure that you know this. If you're visiting with us, I want you to know what we take the Word of God seriously. It's important to us, and what we want to make sure of is that every person has their own copy. And in a day and age, while it's, you know, you can download your own copy on your phone at any point for free, and so a lot of people don't have their own hard copy, we'd like to offer you the, the copy of the Bible that's in the chair in front of you. We would encourage you to take it, make notes in it as you're reading it and studying God's Word, and He's speaking to you through it. It is, it is vital, vital, it is important. So on this Reformation weekend, a weekend where we remember that the Protestant Reformation began, and in large part as a result of God's work through His Word, we now are able to enjoy it personally. It's a, we're able to have it. So we just want you to have that, and, and uh, we, we know that it will bear fruit. And today, the text that we're going to read through is uh, it's, it's the culmination of one of the prophetic announcements of Gabriel. So Gabriel comes twice in the opening of the New Testament and pronounces, announces that two children are going to be born, two very special children. First, John the Baptist, and then Jesus. And today we're going to read the, the moment of his birth. So just follow along with me, if you will. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. And so we're going to stop right there. This kind of sets the stage. It gives us the setting and the context of the circumstances. It's We're picking up in the narrative about three months after we left off previously. Previously, we were we were with Mary and Elizabeth. They were they were worshiping, and and Mary had sung this song. It's called the Magnificat. She had she had sung, and and she remained with Elizabeth for three months. She shows up in Elizabeth's sixth month. She stays there three months. She might even be there still when John the Baptist is born. We don't know for certain. What we do know is that what Gabriel had promised is coming true. God is at work. He had been silent for 400 years. From the closing of the Old Testament to the, to the opening of this moment, to the beginning of this moment, he had been silent for 400 years. Now, we don't want to equate silence with absence. He was still watching over Israel, still pro protecting the path on which he was going to bring redemption. He was still looking in on his people, still working on their behalf. But he wasn't speaking. He wasn't speaking through the prophets. He wasn't speaking so much through the priests. They were waiting. They were in this time of waiting. And the last time that he had spoken, he had prophesied, he had, through Malachi, he had, he had promised Elijah would come and he would turn his, the hearts of God's people back to God. And we know through Jesus' teaching that John the Baptist would fulfill that role. And so when he begins speaking, he begins speaking through Gabriel about the event, about the event that he had last prophesied. So he picks up speaking where he left off. And as he comes to Zechariah, Zechariah is a priest. He's in the temple. He's in the most holy place doing something that only happens once in a lifetime for them. He's offering up the, he's offering up the incense, burning the incense as a sacrifice. Of, and, 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 and he's there, and Gabriel shows up, and it freaks him out. An angel just appeared in front of him. We don't know what Gabriel looked like. We don't know what he appeared as. We just know that Zechariah noticed him, and he gets scared. And then Zechariah begins to speak, and he says, or Gabriel begins to speak, and he says, Zechariah, you're going to be a dad. 
Now, this is shocking, I think, to Zechariah because Zechariah was an old man. In fact, the, the Scripture says that he and Elizabeth were beyond childbearing years, which literally means they were almost dead. But here they were. They, now, this angel is telling him, you're going to have a child. And he's like, wait, how, 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 how am I, I going to know this is going to happen? And I, I picture this moment. I, I don't know if this is really the way it happened, but I picture this moment as Gabriel standing in front of him telling Zechariah that he's about to go home and, and Elizabeth, his wife, is going to get pregnant through him. And, and, and I picture this moment when Zechariah says, well, you're going to have to prove this to me. You're going to have to show me a sign. I picture this moment as, as, as Gabriel kind of standing there like looking around and there's an angel in front of you. I mean, there's an angel. Isn't that enough? And, and Zechariah is asking for a sign. And Gabriel says, well, here's your sign. I'm Gabriel. I stand before God. I speak on, on God's behalf. And because you disbelieved, because you didn't believe the words I said to you, you know what? You're not going to speak. Here's your sign. You won't speak until this all comes to be. So here's Zechariah, just as mute as can be, can't say a word, comes out of the temple after his duty is performed. They're all waiting on him out there. All waiting and wondering what's taking him so long. And he comes out and he can't say a word. And they know something big has happened. He's had a vision. Something has occurred. But they don't know what. So he goes home. And somehow he communicates with his wife, Elizabeth. They do their part. God does his part. And she gets pregnant. A woman who was beyond childbearing years, who had been barren all of her life, is made pregnant. It's a momentous occasion. It's a momentous event. And so we know through the Scripture that she kept herself hidden for five months. And then somewhere along the way, people, I think, begin to find out that that this woman, this woman who'd been barren for so long, for all of her life, is now pregnant, and they start to talk about it. That I think this is probably the talk around the neighborhood. Hey, have you heard about Elizabeth? Man, I don't know what she had done that, that kept her from getting pregnant before, but God has shown her great mercy. She's pregnant, and the time for her birth is here. This is what they were talking about before it was gossip and whispers behind their back. I wonder what they did. I wonder, how, I wonder why God is bringing this kind of judgment on them. You don't know anybody that does that, probably, but that's how... This would have been what it would have been like. I can't believe it. They must have really sinned in some awful way. They must have really made God mad in some terrible way. And now they see it and she's pregnant and she's about to give birth. And they're like, the mercy of God. It's just amazing. His mercy is on her. And they're celebrating. And the eighth day comes around. He's born and the eighth day comes around. And here they come. Oh, man, ready to celebrate. Now, it's not like this. We don't show up and celebrate circumcisions like this anymore, right? I mean, nobody came to the hospital to, to be a part of my circumcision. I don't think anyway, did they? My mom was here, so no, she says no. Probably nobody, if you're a guy, nobody came to yours either. That's just not what we do. But for them, this was a big deal. The eighth day, this was prescribed by the law. This is what they were supposed to do is part of being the covenant people. Every male child was going to be circumcised on the eighth day. That's just what they did. And here's John, you know, they're circumcising him. But they're not just there to celebrate. See, they, they're about to kind of step in and really take, take part in this. They don't want to just watch the circumcision. They want to give the boy his name. They're like, hey, we ought to call him Zachariah. Hey, you ought to, you ought to name him Zachariah. And Maybe you know, maybe you know this. If you're if you're a parent, I'm sure you have experienced it. People, everybody's got a name for you, right? You, you find out you're pregnant and you begin to announce it, and everybody's like, "Hey, what's the name?" Well, here's a great name. If you ever want to name your child Seth, it's an amazing name and it'll do good things. I mean, it'll be a great kid. I promise you. That's the, it's the truth. I just tell you right now, so you don't have to wonder. Any boys, just go ahead and name them Seth. It's fine. 
people do that, right? I'm not really asking you to name yourself after me. Don't, don't misunderstand <laughs> or name your children after me. That's, that'd be weird. But it's true that people do that. Everybody has an idea for you, right? Everybody has a name. Oh, you got you to do this. And, and that's how these people were. They had a name. And so you ought to call him Zachariah. Now, this wasn't normal in that culture. It wasn't, it wasn't as if it was, like now it's normal. If you name your firstborn child after the father, the firstborn son after the father, that's, that's kind of normal. But then it wasn't so normal. It wasn't practice. We'll see that it was normal for them to name them after family members, but it wasn't, this would have been, this would have been Zachariah, son of Zachariah. And you just don't hear that in the scriptures. You don't hear people doing that. And so we don't think it was, would have been normal. We think because of the circumstances, because of the, the, the set of circumstances that surrounded this particular birth, that they thought, well, you ought to name him Zechariah. I mean, you're, they're very old. It's obviously God's mercy on, on them that they're having a child at this point. And, and it's going to probably be the only child you have. You ought to name him after the father. So, so that's what they're doing. I think their intentions were right. I think their intentions were good. And, and, and ultimately, they weren't just trying to take over. But, but Elizabeth isn't going to stand for it. In fact, it says in verse 60, we'll pick it up. But his mother answered, no. In fact, the commentators say that this is a, a, just a strong language, that she is being vehement in this, that she is being direct, and she's not taking any other opportunity. She's just letting them know that is not going to be the way it is. My feet are down. I'm not moving from this place. No. He shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. See, here's what happens is we're talking to Elizabeth because she can speak with us. She's not giving us the answer we want to hear. So, hey, let's figure out how we communicate with the dad. So now, dad, come on, tell us what we want to agree with this. Tell her she's wrong. Put her in her place. Show her. Show her that you're the man of the house. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. Not might be John, could be John. I want it to be John. His name is John. Now, see, in our culture, people give you ideas for names all the way up to the point you're in the hospital. You don't have family members showing up at your house, most typically showing up at your house telling you, hey, you ought to use this name. Because your child, by that time, at least in our culture, your child already has a name. You've already given them a name. When Zachariah makes this pronouncement, he leaves no room for debate or discussion over the topic. His name is John. It is that already. It has been given to him. And if you think back to what's already happened, nobody else knows this. Nobody else was there. He's, a, he's alone in the, holy, in the most holy place. He's all by himself and he's burning incense before the Lord. And this angel appears and the angel says his name is going to be John. Well, what's Zachariah going to do? I mean, think of all that's happened to this point. Gabriel says you're going to have a son. My wife is going to get pregnant. And she does. She's going to have a son and it's a boy. What's he about to do? Is he about to say, no, I, I think that's right. Zechariah sounds good. 
No, all that's been pronounced, all that's been proclaimed, everything that Gabriel has said has come true. So what would he do now? His name is John. God gave him his name. He's already got a name. And these people, this this crowd of people, neighbors and, and relatives from all over the region are there. And they're celebrating and they're excited. But they're left wondering, it says. They're confused. They're, what are they doing? Don't you know nobody in your family has this name? It doesn't make sense. You're, you're breaking all the traditions. You're not, you're, not, you're not living inside the mold. What's going on? And they wondered. But they're not going to be left wondering. They're not going to be left in this, in this place of uncertainty or confusion. And immediately, it says in verse 64, and immediately. That means immediately upon John writing on the tablet. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke blessings or blessing God. His very last words, his, his final words before, before these were words uttered in disbelief. He's disbelieving God. But, but now, after nine months of silence, I'm sure he had all kinds of things to say, all kinds of things that... I told you three months ago about this, and you need to know. I'm sure he had all kinds of words that he wanted to get out, but his very first words are words of praise. And it says in verse 65, and fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. They weren't left wondering. They weren't left curious. What they found in this moment, and then we'll study it again next week as Zechariah prophesies and and blesses God with his words. What they were shown was that in John the Baptist, in John's birth, in his mother's pregnancy, and in his coming life, that God was at work. They were so moved by this. They, they moved from wonder and confusion and uncertainty and, and, and they moved from that to, to fear, which is, which is directly related in the Scripture to worship and awe of God. They were afraid. They were fearful. And then they go about telling everybody about it. You're not going to believe what we just saw. You're not going to believe what we just experienced. You're not going to believe what we just heard from this man who had been silent for, for nine months. He may have even been deaf. It says that they were making signs to him. He may not have been able to hear or speak. And in this moment, this this moment of obedience, he is given words to speak and he is able to communicate again. And they're they're all moved by it. So much so that they're out spreading the word. It says all all over the region, all over the hill country of Judea. And all who heard it, not just the ones who saw it, but all who heard it, laid up in their hearts saying, what will this child be? It's no wonder to me. Now, after studying this passage, it's no wonder that we call John, John the Baptist. It's no wonder that we don't just leave him as John, son of Zechariah. Because they're not wondering at who he's going to be as a person. They're wondering about his role because of what they saw God doing to bring his life to be. And so John the Baptist, he was going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. That's what 
That's what Gabriel had already promised. He was going to turn father or children's hearts back to their fathers and, and people's hearts back to God. And that's exactly what he did. He went preaching and proclaiming the coming kingdom of Christ and calling people to repentance. And his message, I'm going to tell you, his message wasn't one of just simple, hey, you know, Jesus loves you and if you'll just, if you'll just come on along beside me, I'll be a really good friend to you. And, and we, no. Man, he went boldly and courageous. Let me, let me say this. If, if your style of evangelism is, is more gentle, I, I don't mean to make fun of you, but I'm, his was radically different. He went into the hill, he went into the countryside and he preached. And he called people all the way from the rulers of the day to the religious leaders of the day. All, all everybody, nobody, nobody wasn't hearing a call to repentance from John. He was con confronting everyone, so much so that it ended up getting him killed by Herod because Herod didn't like being called a sinner. But he was. And the religious leaders, when they showed up out where he's baptizing and preaching, he's like, hey, you brood of vipers, who told you to, to, to repent? Huh? You show fruits of repentance. Where, where's repentance in your life? You're, well, you're a bunch of religious hacks. You're a bunch of fakes. And he confronted them. And he didn't leave any room for any questions. Like, did he mean? He was direct. He was straightforward. I think, I think his message was so direct and so confrontational that probably it would make us uncomfortable. In fact, we might need to hear it from time to time. The truth is, we probably would put him in the category of people who stand on street corners with signs and bullhorns. Sinners, repent. The kingdom is coming. You are hopeless without Christ. We, we, we would probably look at those guys downtown on a weekend night that we call legalists and we'd put John the Baptist with them. But we remember him as John the Baptist because not only was his preaching confrontational, but it was fruitful. Through him, God called people back to himself. It's estimated, I don't know if this is a, an accurate number, I don't know that anybody could have an accurate number, but it's estimated in one estimate I found, I, it's, it's going to sound crazy, it sounds crazy as I think about it, but one estimate of his, him and his crew baptizing people is 300,000 people. His ministry lasted maybe six months or so. 300,000 people. Again, I don't know if that's accurate, but if it's even close. I mean, if there's even a thousand. I mean, that's, that's a big deal. That's a lot of people. But he's out there preaching and calling people to repentance. And it's not just confrontation for confrontation's sake. It's bearing fruit in the name of Christ. In fact, I mean, the, the, the thing that Mark tells us, and, and actually it says it in Matthew, that, that everyone, all of Judea and Jerusalem was coming to hear him preach. There wasn't a person around that didn't hear John the Baptist preach and proclaim the coming kingdom and call people to repentance. The role that he was going to fill was was pivotal and, and and his message was important because it didn't end at you're a sinner but it ended at christ is coming be ready make yourself ready the king is coming his kingdom is upon us his role is, is important well how in the world could you, we've got it figured out you know i mean 
we know how to do evangelism. We, we know how to, how to reach people. You just got to be friendly and, and make sure it's all about God's love. And you never say anything confrontational because you don't want to push anybody away. And so I don't, I don't shove the Bible down people's throats because, you know, it's, I just don't want to push them off. I don't want to d- discourage them. We, we've got it figured out. If you're just a friend to them, they'll eventually find Jesus. If you live a good enough life, they'll recognize that, that they need Jesus too. How in the world is John? I mean, John the Baptist is not what we expect. How in the world does that work? He preaches confrontational message. He preaches in controversial ways. He calls people boldly in their sin to to bow before Christ in repentance. I think the, the phrase at the very end of this passage is key. For the hand of the Lord was with him. That phrase, the hand of the Lord, it is, it is the reason anything that John did worked. The hand of the Lord was with him. They recognized it even in his birth, even in giving his name as John. They saw it. And, and then as Zechariah prophesied, and I'm sure he tells the story of all that's happened. People recognize that the hand of the Lord was with him. This this phrase, hand of the Lord, it's used throughout the Old Testament. Luke's the only one that uses it in the New Testament. But let me just share with you, you see it in a couple of different perspectives, a couple of different ways in the Old Testament, broad categories. In some cases, it's used as it refers to God bringing judgment. In Exodus 9.3, as the Israelites are about to be brought out of Egypt, God, it says, Behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a severe plague. Do you hear that? The hand of the Lord will fall with a severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, and the herds and the flocks. That's judgment. The hand of the Lord is bringing judgment. His hand. Isaiah 25.10, you don't even need context for this and you're going to see it. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain and Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. As straw is trampled down in a dunghill. That's vivid imagery. And what's, what's causing that? The hand of the Lord. It's not just about judgment. And we also see it in, in cases where it refers to God providing power and direction for His people. Psalm 118, 15 through 16. Glad songs of salvation are the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Proverbs 21, 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. See, when we, when we think of the hand of the Lord, when, when Luke tells us this, he gives us this clue, this understanding that, that John is going to be who he is. He is going to do what he does because God's hand is on him. Always depicting his sovereign and powerful work, bringing judgment against his enemies or blessing and, and providing for those who are his people. And, and it's easy. It's easy as we sit here and we study this and, and think, well, that's John. I mean, Gabriel showed up to say that his mom was going to get pregnant with him. It's John. Gabriel had a role planned out for him. God obviously knew what he was going to do through John before the foundation of the world. God had a plan for John. It's easy to assume that we just need to think about John. Brothers and sisters, 
what we see him doing in and through John, we should be seeing him do in and through us. In the same way that God's hand was on John, Christian, it is on you. Do you know that? Do you recognize that? In the same way that God wrote John's story, oversaw John's life, and ensured that John's life was what it was going to be, what it was supposed to be, brothers and sisters, He has written your story. And He is overseeing your life. His hand is on you. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we are His workmanship. Poema is the, the title of uh, the word, and from that we get poem. We are His poem, His work of art. We're His craft. His fingerprints are on us. He's personally and intimately involved. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them in the same way that He had been planning and preparing and getting things ready for John to lead others to Jesus. He has been working in us and preparing works for us that we might turn and lead others to Jesus. You are His poem. You are His craftsmanship. You are the product of His hands upon you. Christian, this is who we are. Because of it. Because of that. Brothers and sisters, in God's hands, there is no reason for worry or anxiety. Because nothing can undo any detail of His plan. Old age. You know, Zachariah and Elizabeth, they could have they used that. Hey, we're, we're old. You probably ought to find somebody else, don't you? Don't you think there's better people to carry a baby for you? That's not a problem for God. Never been able to have a baby before? Hey, don't, don't you know one of us doesn't work? Something's wrong somewhere. She's never been able to get pregnant. Not an issue for God. In fact, it's pretty easy. Oh, and nobody in, in your family's name is... John, why would you name him John? Something even as seemingly seemingly as insignificant as a name. No detail escapes God's hands. Commentators argue back and forth about about whether, and maybe not directly, but they, they each have their point to make. And Some people say, oh, Luke's readers wouldn't have mattered. They wouldn't have got the meaning of John's name. It's too insignificant a thing. It's too subtle a, a thing. But I don't think it was about Luke's readers getting it or not getting it. I think John's name has meaning because God gave it. John's name means it, God has been gracious. And if you think, well, wait, why did he give it to John? Because John's preaching repentance and, and, and calling everybody sinners and being confrontational. How in the world is that God being gracious? That God confronts us with our sin is an act of his grace that we even get to hear our accusation and not be smited is an act of grace. We wouldn't know his grace if we didn't first know our sin. 
grace wouldn't be grace. It would be something we'd earned and deserved. God wouldn't, we wouldn't know His graciousness if we didn't first know our sin. The very fact that John was one crying out in the desert was an act of God's grace. That the world heard of the Messiah that came is an act of God's grace. And God was gracious through John. Something as insignificant, something seemingly as insignificant as a name. And it didn't escape His plan. We're always getting caught up in the obstacles. All the things that could get in our way. All the things that might seem to, to halt us or stop us. To keep us from succeeding. Well, I, I can't do that. I don't, I don't have the ability to do that. I'm, I'm not good enough to do that. Maybe you know people like this. that They're defeated before they ever even step out. Like they, they just don't try anything on for, for God because they just... Do you, you know who I am? As a, as a source of encouragement, do you know who I am? Ask me sometime. I'll tell you my story. None of us deserve it. But we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. We, 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 we have every reason in all circumstances to rejoice. We have reason in all circumstances to be at peace. We, we have reason to not be overwhelmed by any situation, by any seeming obstacle in front of us. But we still struggle, we still struggle with facing it one of two ways. We can face it like the Israelites in the desert. After being led out of Egypt, they had seen God's power. Moving up to the point of the Exodus, they had seen God's power. They were, he, he was bringing trial after trial after trial, uh, uh, plague after plague after plague on Egypt, and, and they're protected from it. Then they saw it. Then when they go to leave, God, God's like, hey, Egypt, Give them your wealth. And, and so they leave like rich and overflowing with all of this stuff because they found favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And then Pharaoh wakes up after they're gone. Pharaoh wakes up and he says, hey, army, let's go get them. And then they look in over their shoulder in fear because they see this army coming and they're at the Red Sea and they don't know what's going to happen and they're scared to death. God parts the sea and they cross on dry ground and the enemy is destroyed and Egypt is swallowed up in the, in, in the sea. And then they walk out into the desert. And you'd think by now they got to have it. they got to understand God is on their side. He's protecting. He's providing. He's making sure they're going to make it to the other side. But what happens is they get out there and they're eating manna and water's a little scarce and there's no meat and they're upset. Not celebrating. Not worshiping. Not praising. They're upset. He should have left us in Egypt. At least we had the comforts of Egypt and he just should have left us there to die. Instead, he let us out here and we're going to die in the desert. We can face it like that. But in God's hands, there's no reason for worry or anxiety because nothing can undo any detail of that plan. And we are able, because of his work, because of his hand on us, we are able to face it as Spurgeon calls us to in his morning and evening devotion. It's from November 11th, his morning and evening devotion. 
It says this, it may be that you are planted or you are planted where you get but little. You are put there by the loving husbandman. That's God. Because only in that situation will you bring forth fruit unto perfection. I want you to remember this, so put this on the screen. Remember this. He wants you to remember it too. Remember this. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. The sovereign hand of God that is on you, that has created, that has given you good works to do, that sovereign hand, the hand of God, If there was another better place for you to be, another better circumstance for you, he would have made sure that you were there. You are placed, he goes on, you are placed by God in the most suitable circumstances. And if you had the choosing of your lot, you would soon cry, Lord, choose my inheritance for me. For by my self-will I am pierced through with many sorrows. Be content with such things as you have since the Lord has ordered all things for your good. Take up your daily cross. Listen, this is good. Take up your daily cross. It is the burden best suited for your shoulder and will prove most effective to make you perfect in every good word and work for the glory of God. Down, busy self and proud impatience is not for you to choose, but for the Lord of all love. Trials must and will befall but with humble face to see love inscribed upon them all. This is happiness to me. Because God is sovereignly and powerfully working in our midst, providing and protecting for His people and bringing judgment against His enemy. There is no reason to be worried or full of anxiety. And then finally, in God's hands, the ordinary becomes extraordinary the ordinary becomes extraordinary john is just a baby boy baby boys are born all the time it happened every day it was a normal event and and yes this there there may have been just some fluke about the idea of this this little baby coming to this old couple it may have been some small simple thing and they saw the mercy of god and yeah it was it was okay this is mercy certainly we rejoice and we throw parties this baby being born is is extraordinary, not because it's a baby being born, but because the work of God around it, the work of God upon him. Just like John, we draw breath by the power of God because his hand is upon us. But just, just like John, we have spiritual life within us because God has given it to us. Our name may never be written in the pages of Scripture. We may not be listed in Hebrews 11 with all the heroes of faith. We may not baptize thousands or even hundreds. But brothers and sisters, if we serve one another with the power and the the ability that God gives us, that is an extraordinary thing. That is abnormal. It's beyond ordinary. If you, in some way, serve someone and it bears eternal fruit in their life, that's extraordinary. It's beyond believable. It's it's beyond what we deserve. It's beyond what we could earn. If you take opportunity to proclaim the gospel just to one person, and that one person believes in Jesus, that is extraordinary. 
That is beyond imagination. It's beyond believable because what's just happened in that person's life is that they have been brought from death into life. Their lives are forever, I'm talking forever, eternally changed. They are better eternally. They They are going to enjoy the fruit of that forever if you live in such a way that your legacy even makes it a generation or two generations and people are remembering you because of the godly life you lived. And the godly things you did and the way that you pointed people to Jesus, if you live in that way, that is extraordinary. In God's hands, He makes little, oh, us, everyday folks, extraordinary. Dwight L. Moody, just a simple little shoe salesman, uneducated, not ordained, sitting in a prayer meeting with a group of friends and somebody says something that struck him to his core. He met with the man a year later and he even asked him about it and the, and the guy is like, no, nah, I don't even remember saying those words exactly, but, but Moody's like, they have burned in my heart. So he's been quoted by, as saying this. He, I think he said it probably often after, after this moment. He says, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. By God's help, I aim to be that man. And now, you know Dwight L. Moody's name. But you know Dwight L. Moody's name not because of what Dwight L. Moody did, but what God did through him. We're reading and studying about John the Baptist not because of what John the Baptist so much did as what God did through him. Wouldn't it be amazing Extraordinary. If at the end of your life, people are remembering what God did through you, what would it be to be blessed that in generations to come, your name's not on a billboard, it's not on some school, it's not on, on, on on, on some record. You don't have some list of credentials out behind it. But the your children and your children's children and their children are living in the legacy of loving and following Christ because of what God did through you. What if it's not just your family? And so we remember people because of what God has done, because His hand is on them. What are you going to be remembered for? What could He possibly do you. Regular old, everyday, ordinary you. Let's pray. Father, you are good. You are great and powerful. We are unworthy of all that you've done. We're incapable of of doing the things that only you can do. And and so dependent upon you for your power and your provision. Would you help us see your hand at work around us? Would you help us know? God, would you would you work in us now? You give us courage. Give us a boldness. Go and live in such a way that honors you, that brings you worship.
and leads others to worship you. So all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.